time of Reagan, and before the rise of Seagal, Snipes, and Van Damme, there was an age undreamed of. Unto this land came Arnold the Austrian. He was a barbarian, a demigod, a killer robot from the future, and he was destined to wear the crown of Hollywood upon a troubled brow. It is only his chroniclers, Mike Gillis and Casey Doran, who can tell you of his legend. This is his saga. Podcast de la Vista, baby. So, Casey. Yes, Mike. For the second episode in a row, we have a movie about Arnold being a lying father <laughs> and husband. <laughs> oh, the divorce and the threats of divorce in this movie ring so close to real life, don't they? Yeah, this is this is a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> it's it's again. This, this question, is a relationship movie, right? Yeah, it's a yeah. relationship movie yeah. with a lot of neck snapping. <laughs> we, of course, are talking about 1994's True Lies, directed and written by the great James Cameron. That's the guy who brought us Terminator, Terminator 2, uh, The Abyss, Titanic, Avatar. You and, know who he is. Yeah. We don't need to say it. You know, Aliens. Know I mean, this, right. is like, this guy, is, is he, he does big blockbuster 80s movies. This was another one of those movies, like I mentioned during Total Recall, that at least Arnold claims in his biography that he found out, oh, we should do this movie. So he was the one, this French movie, this sort of spy movie that was the same premise. Yeah, it's called the Le Total, and right. I apologize to all I'm the ways you, I've... I'm glad you did it. But, you know, he he said in his biography, he's like, I found this out. This would be a great movie. I'm going to ask James Cameron to do it. And then Jim Cameron went to Fox and got all the money or whatever. So this is one of those self-made Arnold projects that ended up being huge because apparently he had the inspiration to do it. So, And this also became the first movie with an over $100 million budget. So oh, yeah. this was the beginning of everything that we see right now. That I mean, $100 million now just seems a little bit quaint when you compare it's, it to it's like a- relationship a, drama. Yeah. Like a rom- rom- rom-com is $100 million. But to join us uh, talking about- uh, about True Lies is, of course, a returning guest who has been away for far too long. She is one of the co-hosts of the Ask an Atheist radio show, Rebecca Friedman. Welcome back. Glad to be here. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Casey. I am excited to talk about True Lies. There is a lot to say about True Lies. Um, I think I have the most handwritten notes for this one of any topic we've covered for a long time. It's a hell of a movie, and it's it's uh, it's not usual when you have an Arnold movie that's two hours and 20 minutes. I was really surprised going back and looking at it. This is pre-2000 to have right. something that's a... Uh, a greater than two hour movie. Especially in action movies, those tend to move at a clip. I, I have um, feelings about where this could have been clipped. Speaking of clip. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> but uh, but I think that the two the two hour movie thing was novel. I don't know that it needed to quite be two hours and twenty minutes. Oh, okay. I, yeah, we could talk more about that when we get to. Set pieces, Definitely. action set pieces. There's a lot. There are so many of yes. them in this one. So yep. Becky, we've talked about on your first episode a bit about your history with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, what is your history with True Lies? Uh, did you see this in the theater? I saw it at a sleepover. Oh um, yes. So not so one of those like girl sleepovers where there's like six of us and we decide that we're all going to stay up all night. And I think we 
watched it. We watched True Lies with Blown Away and <laughs> Speed and oh, Speed okay. to maybe not. I don't know. I'm conflating everything that happened mid '90s. Um, but it was a, it was an action movie night where we stayed up until 5 a.m. Um, and it was at my friend Annie's house, and uh, we just decided we wanted our dose of blowing up things and um, oiled muscle men. Mm-hmm. Oh, there is plenty mm-hmm. in this one. So, mm-hmm. Becky, um, if you had to sum up the plot of True Lies in maybe a paragraph or two, what is this movie all about? The Incredibles, but more misogynistic. <laughs> <laughs> Less wholesome. <laughs> um, okay, this movie is about James Cameron getting to blow stuff up with Arnold yeah. at the helm. Yeah. And a few little like nutsack punches here and there <laughs> to <laughs> punctuate and just bring in the uh, 12-year-old boys that got tired of the gunshots and needed a little like kick to the groin here and there for for laughter. Plus um a very weird interlude where it becomes a relationship movie yep. where Arnold gets creepy and uh, <laughs> suspects cheating. So. Yeah, that, that's a really weird diversion. This is a the, weird place this, this movie is, goes. Yeah, this movie ch- turns and then it turns back. And, and I am glad for that turn back. <laughs> it, it, it's, it is strange. You have never been so happy to see a terrorist. <laughs> but, uh, and I was, I was surprised re-watching it, of course, 25 years after its release, of... How long it takes into that movie mm-hmm. to turn back to the you know gutsy action blowing up stuff? Um, but did you ask what this movie was about, or did you ask what the plot of this movie was? Either one, because because uh, I can tell you what this movie was about. I can't really tell you what the plot of the movie was because um, I think if I if it turned the plot turned sideways, I kind of missed it because it disappeared. Um, not unlike Tom Arnold uh, <laughs> behind a light pole. <laughs> that was actually one of my favorite bits of this entire movie. Okay, was All that right. light pole? Um, so this is the Arnold Schwarzenegger James Bond movie. Yeah, this is this is. We talk about absurd macho bullshit, and there's a lot of stuff in his in the Arnold canon that falls under this. I think this might be at the peak of the because it's Arnold and it's macho and it's bullshit. Yeah, for sure. So I actually was look, looking at this in the the timeline of James Bond, and James Bond had this huge gap in the late '80s, early '90s, where there just weren't new Bond movies coming out. And weirdly enough, and we've talked about this before, that was also when the Berlin Wall fell. So there was like this whole restructuring of- Who's the the bad guys? (laughs) That's exactly what it is, of trying to figure out what the bad guys are. We have always had the Cold War as this backdrop of, oh, is it the Russians? And suddenly we don't have that anymore. And the the early 90s was this moment, and you see this in shows like Star Trek The Next Generation of, oh, we're going to go forward in an age where we don't have enemies anymore. (laughs) And it didn't last too long. So there's this like- Kind of weird little sliver of time between the fall of the Berlin Wall and 9-11, where we really had to figure out how spy movies were going to work. Well, and there are little echoes of it even in True Lies because they say, oh, this is a post-Cold War thing that was stolen for, yeah. you know, nuclear weapons. Oh, and at one point... They refer to Kazakhstan as like the former Soviet Republic of yeah. Kazakhstan. And I was like... Way to way to drill that down. <laughs> I, it, I mean, it does have the standard sort of Cold War 
action spy plot, which is like someone stole Russian nukes and now we've got to stop them. Like, and there is nothing more standard in the 90s, especially how many movies in the 90s were about rogue nukes and especially especially in 90s mm-hmm. i can think of at least three other films where they have a nuke actually being detonated just I, because i can think of three james cameron films <laughs> yes. that are obsessed with nukes being de- you know right. detonated but this is it's you don't see as many nukes just casually detonated in in movies now that are supposed to not be like signaling the nuclear apocalypse but just like oops that happened i think yeah. the one i can think of is next that Nicolas Cage one. Oh, does that have a loose nuke in it? Yeah. Peacemaker, yeah. Broken Arrow. Well, the, the TV series 24 is a great example of what they would try to do with espionage stories after 9-11, mm. and it got way darker and way more serious, and it's like, we have to do this awful, horrible war crime shit, or the world's going to blow up. And they had a lot of loose nukes blowing up in like the mountains of California or something. Sure. And that kind of stuff would go down. But yeah, we were still kind of figuring it out at this point, because James Bond, for all a lot of people knew, was kind of dead. There hadn't been a new Bond movie when this thing came out for like five years. Yeah, this is pre-Goldeneye, right? Yeah, Goldeneye came out the year after this. Yeah. But this is the Pierce Brosnan era? Yeah, yeah. It's like we, we, we're kind of between Bonds. Okay. And we were kind of figuring out, it's like, well, what do we do? What do we do? Because it's usually super villain steals Russian nukes, threatens to overtake the world, and he's got an underwater city or something like that. There's all that <laughs> kind of crazy stuff. And we're like, well, what do we do now that there's really only kind of only one world superpower and they go terrorists? Yeah. And I think that because of that timeline, again, that weird little window between the end of the Cold War and the beginning of the war on terror where we could have a fun, wacky adventure with Middle Eastern terrorists and not oh. have to grapple with a lot of really uncomfortable things that we would have a hard time avoiding in 10 years. Yeah. I was also trying to think of, you know, I did watch the 30 minute making of True Lies mm-hmm. where they had to do a lot of um, collaboration with the military for all these scenes with the Harrier jets yep. and everything. And I'm thinking not in just movies did we have a hard time figuring out who our enemy was, but perhaps in like our own patriotic sense. I mean, was this a time, I wonder, when uh, when enlistments had gone down? Um, because we don't really have anything stirring us up. Okay, I don't, I don't know what's going on. And, you know, military being so keen on collaborating on this huge blockbuster hit because sure. it would bring the attention to, I can fly an airplane like Arnold Schwarzenegger if I enlist in the military, just like, you know, Top Gun did for the Navy. Yeah. <laughs> I think it has that. There's that propaganda element. And we've seen it a lot, especially in Michael Bay films, uh, where you want to use jets and aircraft carriers as real locations that you usually get into a situation where the military has some kind of authority, uh, maybe on the cut of the movie or how things are used or approval of the script. And um, it was a lot easier to do that. Again, we're talking about like peacetimes here where... It's a lot easier to get people to sign up to fly a Harrier jet when you're not going to have to, like, get shot at. And uh, the idea of sort of these rogue criminals as your bad guys, but we're not, like, in an age where we've seen, like, you know, a building explode on American soil so we can still have fun with it. And I know James Cameron has actually said that because of 9-11, it just killed any chance of doing a sequel to this. Right. That Although was, I was reading that they're going to try to do a True Lies TV show adaptation, because of course they are. I think you can still keep it without the... T- the terrorist angle is not a thing that you can't cut out of it, because I think the the basic premise, the heart of this, is like, well, what if James Bond 
had a secret identity and this second life as like a dorky, boring suburban dad. And his family thinks he's a computer salesman, but when he goes on these boring business trips to sell computer software, he's really like taking on terrorists and uh, scuba diving and <laughs> dancing the tango and doing battle with bad guys on skis with machine guns. Right. Well, we should talk about that because the uh, the I had the written down in my notes that the one thing you can say about Jim Cameron is that his visual storytelling is amazing. Um, I think the script. I think the script. This is a prime example of script written for Arnold Schwarzenegger because yeah. he really does get to be Arnold here. But I mean, you start off in Switzerland at some chalet or something. It's, right? like, a be- it's like a castle in the Alps, which is a perfect with bond a, with setting. With a frozen lake, and the first thing you see is a a dock with snow on it, footsteps going into the water and a little bit of ice broken. And the reveal of Arnold Schwarzenegger in this movie is him breaking through the ice and coming out in a wetsuit. And then you kind of cut back to um, Grant Heslov and Tom Arnold, who Tom Arnold plays Gibb and Grant Heslov is Faisal. Is, is Faisal, the assistant guy, the sort of put upon assistant guy in the van because you need to have guys on, in the chair, as they say in Spider-Man, right? Guy in the chair. Um, and then they cut to him and the reveal where Arnold Schwarzenegger peels off the wetsuit and he has a tuxedo underneath. Uh, yeah. And you're like, a beautiful reveal. I love it. it I love the whole opening 15 minutes of yeah. this film. You, but you know exactly what to expect there. You know, this is it, that's a James Bond thing, right? Is of course he'd have a meticulous tuxedo underneath his snowsuit. Not you a know? single wrinkle. Yeah. <laughs> and what I love too is that you notice while he's talking to them over the earpiece, he's putting on this thing that he brought with him, which is a little bit of aftershave. <laughs> that he's applying yes. to himself. So he brought that with him too. It's his little details, I think, that this movie does really, really well. These little organic pieces that kind of break a little bit from Bond and have a little bit of fun with these little indignities that people have to kind of go through. Like Arnold can fly a Harrier jet, but he can't land or take off without bumping a cop car. Right. But he's very polite about it. Yeah. This whole movie is Arnold apologizing. Whoops, sorry, yeah. oh, excuse oh. me. <laughs> it's, but, Whether he's on a horse or in a, in a military aircraft. That's that's the other thing I love is that this is like an Arnold highlight reel. It, this yeah. more than any other movie feels like James Cameron wants to show the world how awesome Arnold Schwarzenegger oh, is. This could be the, bir- the genesis, I don't think it is, but this could be the birth of the idea of a movie um, being made solely out of trailer moments because there are a hell of a lot of really impressive trailer moments from the set pieces in this movie. And I feel like you, as simple as of a story this is, is you could easily tell the story of True Lies and it'd be a very compelling two and a half minutes in a trailer. If you mm-hmm. wanted to just concisely tell the whole story, you easily could because the set pieces work, you know, explain the story by themselves, you know? One thing I kind of like that this story does that I don't think a lot of other stories have done and I would say less Bond and actually more Superman Spider-Man which is what is the cost of a secret identity yeah Uh, because when you have a character even somebody like Superman who's like a moral paragon the thing with a secret identity is that you are just constantly lying to your loved ones you're constantly lying about where you're going you're constantly lying about why you didn't show up to important moments in their lives and why you why you seem like a thoughtless jerk when you're saving the world and what I love they do is that they show what happens when those lies crumble and suddenly the two halves of his lives 
are thrown together in this like terrorist plot. And suddenly he has his wife there seeing him for the first time as this action hero. When she openly says earlier in the movie that if she wants to fall asleep, she asks him about how his workday went. <laughs> well, you know, he really loves the computer business. <laughs> I, I love the thing where she's asking him about his business trip, his quote unquote business trip. And he spends like a minute getting really excited about this like inventory software. <laughs> and so, so much of the part of his cover is how do I provide the sort of details where somebody doesn't want to ask me more questions because they're like, well, honey, I'm glad you're happy about that software, <laughs> but you just kind of want to move on. But they do have kind of an interesting relationship in that she's complaining about this thing with the plumbing and because of some element of the foundation of the house, it's going to cost an extra 600 bucks. And, and he doesn't seem to be paying attention. And, and, uh, she goes, Oh yeah. But then I, I slept with him and he knocked off a hundred bucks and he kisses her on the cheek and says, good thinking. (laughs) (laughs) And those are the bits I have too, because this is a movie that kind of pulls me in a lot of different directions. And you've already presaged this a little bit, Becky. Um, there's a lot of gender politics from 1994 that haven't aged really well. Oh, yeah. I kind of made a list of all of the utterances that <laughs> were anti-woman. Well, what percent- uttered by women and mostly by Tom Arnold. Mostly yeah, by I was Tom. Gonna say, I was about to say, it starts with Tom Arnold. It really does. <laughs> but the, the, the two-sided coin of Tom Arnold is, is that Tom Arnold is the one who is his surrogate wife in on their missions because he's like it's the work don't, wife don't forget your ring back on harry don't, here's your here's your passport here's the present for your daughter to, because you need to bring something back from switzerland right so he is he's kind of the wife but he's also the friend who has been through many divorces and who's like women you can't live with them can't shoot them yeah you know and for all of his you know women am i right stuff yeah. he's actually more sensitive to his wife Helen's feelings than Arnold is. That he's the one who has to remind him of things like, you're supposed to go to your own birthday party. Here's your <laughs> wedding ring that you forgot. Right. Here's a here's a present that you can say is from Switzerland for your daughter. He has to be, Arnold has to be told how old his daughter is by Tom <laughs> Arnold. And when there's a plot element later on in the movie where it looks like Arnold's wife may be cheating on him, Tom Arnold is the one that's trying to talk him down down and saying, you know, listen, buddy, she's a flesh and blood woman and you're not around and yeah, seems to be like empathizing with Jamie Lee Curtis, <laughs> Helen Tasker. Yeah. Saying, yeah OK. <laughs> He's like, what do you expect? You know, and you know what? She's just going to sleep with this guy for a while and you know, you'll get over it. Just take it like a man. And Arnold just grabs him and just goes, stop turning me up. <laughs> There's a great I love the great. And now that we have 25 years of history between uh, us and when this movie has happened there's a funny inversion when you think about like at the time Tom Arnold is clearly channeling some of his divorce his highly publicized public divorce with Roseanne at the time and of course I think that they said that was the genesis of him doing the what kind of sick bitch takes the ice cube trays out of the freezer that was apparently a personal anecdote that word gets dropped a lot in yes, ways that does. I wasn't prepared that it would it sting me it's a lot but, you know, in retrospect, because Harry Tasker is actually a faithful husband who really does love his wife and is regretful that he doesn't get to spend more time with her. Um, and he fights for her to get her back like he wants to reconnect with his wife. Now, fast with forward the, with illegal wiretaps and kidnappings. <laughs> but fast forward 25 years. And then, of course, it's <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger who had the affair with his housekeeper or whatever. And now Tom Arnold doesn't look so bad. Yeah. <laughs> comparatively speaking. 
I don't know. And his ex-wife is crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> yes. everything is working out. It's yeah. all coming up Gib. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's just, uh, but yeah, that's the thing that's so weird with it. And I kept coming back to it because I was going to ask you, Becky, what percentage of your list was was Tom Arnold because I went back and forth so many times on his character. There's that women am I right kind of stuff. Yep. And then he sympathizes. And this is the thing that I think kind of saves the movie from what a lesser movie would do. There's a weird amount of sympathy and empathy for Helen that a lesser movie would have thrown out. That's right. There is sympathy and empathy but it's done in a very patronizing way um, and and especially coupled or, or contrasted with uh, with Simon's character with Bill Paxton's character oh, God. where Bill Paxton's character is supposed to be sleazy but he's kind of saying and thinking about women in all the same way yeah. Yeah. as Gib is and so it's like how how different are these two really um, and then yeah so I'm I'm yeah. Let's get into your list a little bit okay. here. So some of these are actually uttered by both the Tia Carreri character, um, oh. Juno, what's her name? Juno, Juno Skinner. Juno Skinner, and by Helen Tasker. So there's um, Biscuit, which could be a term of endearment, but it's said in a really kind of like little, like slighting and derogatory way. Um, bitch, stupid undisciplined bitch, sick bitch. Um, <laughs> psychopathic bitch. Um, there's the scene when uh, when the the assistant is um, is finally in to the, yes. the 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 mainframe or whatever into the files. Right, he's decrypted the files and and he is talking about decrypting the files as if he is literally secretively assaulting a woman. He's like, I have my hands up the skirt and they we're right, almost home right. and we're almost there and bingo. And it's just like that. Right. There's not. Ooh, he crosses uh, a line where Tom Arnold cuts him off. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Tom Arnold's like, just copy the goddamn files. Okay. <laughs> um, there's a uh, women can't live with them. Can't kill them. Um, Simon. Uh, when, everything, when about Simon. everything about Simon. Um, the can, <laughs> can I say that? Because this is something that I've been holding on to for 25 years, which is, there's very little about this movie that I... There's lots of set-piece stuff that I remembered, but there's very little about the dialogue that I remembered. The one piece of dialogue that I did remember is she has an ass like a 10-year-old boy. Yes. And from that moment, you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, is the movie giving permission to kill this guy? Yeah. Because I think once he crosses the line of, like... A, a weird pedophilia thing. Yeah. Once you cross it, you're just like, well, this movie's going to murder this guy. Well, and but the, it's such a bizarre. He is a creep, of course. Is he that much of a creep? The haircut they give Bill Paxton in this movie is so the utterly the mustache. And the mustache. He is. It is the perfect costume and and hair for a fucking creep. I had a high school history teacher that had the mustache and the haircut to a T. It was. It was oh, yeah. Huh. But the, go on, go on. The um, but the the resolution, right? We want permission to just kill this creep mm -hmm. um, the resolution is well he's not actually that bad because he's not a terrorist so we'll just let him piss himself yeah. completely demasculating yes. him and that's good enough yep. mm -hmm. right the resolution for someone exerting you know gross misogyny is to just you know demasculate them and instead of actually saying, hey, maybe don't be a creep. Um, I mean, that's, is that as good as you can give in we should, we should probably I talk guess. a bit about Simon and who, oh, yeah. what his role in this movie is, is that Simon is somebody that at first Arnold thinks Helen is having an affair with because they have secretive phone calls. Like her work friend is like, oh, your mystery man is calling. So this is actually when the movie turns, right? Yeah. Is when, when he believes there's infidelity happening. And so 
his his personal life starts to entreat on his work life and he's like i want you to put a wiretap on my home and her office phone now it's funny because it starts as his his personal life intruding on his home life but it's really arnold intentionally making his work life yes. Yes. intrude upon his his personal life because he crosses all sorts of ethical lines that even tom arnold is like okay buddy we need to talk about felonies <laughs> and we need to talk about what'll happen and you get that moment misuse of resources yeah. in yeah. order to Put whole SWAT on uh, Bill Paxton's safe house trailer. Right. Oh, the safe—that's uh, his real home, isn't it? They <laughs> yes. cut half of Bill Paxton's house off to to do this assault tra- strike on them. So he thinks that um, his wife is having an affair, but what it actually is is that this this creep guy, who's actually a used car salesman. Uh, pretends to be a spy to try to get into bed with women and they're like, you're my contact. You're the only one I can trust. Hold my briefcase for me. It's got maps of Kuwait and a gun that's probably not real in it. (laughs) And uh, she gets pulled into it and thinks that she's like his contact, like his Doctor Who companion of of espionage. And um, it becomes really clear to Arnold because of him wiretapping her phone and putting a GPS tracker in her purse. And, and these were all kind of new things that would only be available to people of Team Omega Force or whatever it is, right? Omega Sector. Okay, Omega Sector. Go. Which has the greatest floor logo of <laughs> anything ever. I, I think it is ironic that the man who is the leader of Omega Sector is the Omega Man. It is the yes. Omega Man. Yep. Uh, Charlton, Charlton Heston <laughs> with an eye patch. Yeah, he's got full on Nick Fury in this movie. <laughs> and he just gets kind of a little cameo, but everything he says sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, That's to bring in a little bit more of that Bond flavor. Yeah, again, yeah of right? course. Except of instead course. of the the grizzled guy be wearing an eye patch being a bad guy, he's sort of the head of the good spy agency, if you yeah. will. Yeah. Oh, that eye patch is incredible. <laughs> but yeah, I love that he's their boss. Um, but yeah, they decide to start fucking with Simon while Helen is there because he's about to do this thing where he's like, I need you to come with me to London and then Paris. You need to pretend to be my wife. And this is him making his move into this, you know, safe house trailer. Um, the touch that I absolutely love is when he pours her a glass of wine and they clinked them together. They're clearly plastic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, There's a lot of realism in this, even in the suburban Harry and Helen household. I actually was I, I'm, I have this thing about looking in films when couples are like in their bedroom together. Right. And and I want to see what's on their bedside table. And in most films and in most movies and, 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 and TV series and things like that, bedside tables are completely clear of everything except for maybe one book, a pair of reading glasses and a lamp. Right. And this one is, I believe, a legitimate suburban house somewhere in California because there is a radiator that's been retrofitted with a a slab, a shelf above it, and there's like the big clunky phone, there's like glasses, there's like a pill bottle, and it's like, that's totally real. And they yeah. have these like, f- you know, uh, floral, um, sh- you know, pillow shams. And I was like, that totally looks like the the bedrooms of the the parents of you know my parents and kids yeah. growing up and things like that. I and had that same thought too because they I think it's in their bedroom or it's in the ante room next to the bathroom. They have a TV and you can see some VHS tapes sort of above the television, like you would if yeah. you don't have a, a rack. You're just going to shove VHS tapes wherever. And one of them was the Buns of Steel, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, my mom had a Buns of Steel tape, so I had that same tape somewhere in my living room. I think it, the Buns of Steel is one of those things that's like a 1980s free space in just a suburban house. <laughs> it's like Buns of Steel, uh, probably a copy of uh, Communion, 
which is in oh, way too yeah. many houses. Yeah. Um, a boggle. Um, <laughs> these are all things that you just sort of see in people's houses. And occasionally that Lee Iacocca uh, biography. Sure. And I'm like, who? I don't think anyone read this, but a lot of people owned it. <laughs> they probably came with the house with buns of steel. So, so you have like the reality of the suburban house and then the reality of this trailer house with the with the plastic wine glasses and ching, which is not actually oh, a nice you know, uh, clink. Um, on that same, they, the set designer was really good about that because uh, the safe house does look appropriately sleazy and messed up. And on the same sort of shelf that separates the door, the entryway from the little kitchenette, there is a coffee mug that looks like it's melted. Like it look at, you know, like someone set a piece of plastic on a radiator and it says Pobody's Nerfect. There's <laughs> <laughs> weird, stupid little details that are you know, that are obviously trying to represent the character who lives there, you know. Helen's workplace kitchenette is also a really good mm. um, little piece of realism because there's like random stickers on the fridge that you would see in a boring office yeah. kitchenette. I mean. Yeah, those are the little details, I think, that make this movie. The little sort of organic bits that feel lived in and not just like a set that was made 10 minutes ago. Well, and it's completely strange because this plot this movie has a plot that is thin as a, a communion wafer you have communion stuck in my head now but you know different communion but whatever um and and it's all on you know these masterful explosions and and gunfighting scenes and things like that but at the same time you have this really weird you know these little elements of a set that's very realistic um and that was puzzling to me and fun I enjoyed that about it. Yeah. Um, what I kind of love, it's weird, is I almost don't get angry at what they do to Simon because Simon is such a fucking creep. And it's set up where Arnold goes down to his used car thing to test drive a car. And that's when the guy lays out his entire method. Oh, my favorite quote from that whole disgusting thing is nothing about the buns like a 10-year-old boy or something like that. Oh, good but God. The, the vet gets them wet. I, oh. I have that written down in my notes. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is just, yeah. I'm I'm sure that Jim Cameron spent a few weeks with Bill Paxton because they're obviously have been friends and they probably are just improvising all of this like sick shit. Like she was well, she she's so hot she could jumpstart a leaf suck, blower. Was oh, it suck dry a leaf blower? And you're, yeah, like, yeah. you're like, oh, oh god! But they they come the rapid fire is so quick. He says like make you beg for buttermilk, <laughs> and there's like all this the guy is such, and you see Arnold's face and it's some of his best facial acting I think he's ever done where he's pretending to like <laughs> laugh along and his eyes are just like oh yeah this guy and. I love the realization at first when they're spying on the two of them in the van. Um, they first go, wait, do we know this guy? Is he? Oh, my God. Like, Tom Arnold's like, I think this guy's a spook. What's going on? And they're, like, going through. Which agency does he work for? <laughs> and their immediate assumption is that, oh, my God, what if they're messing with Helen to get to you? And then they become real clear that one of the action set pieces that happens earlier in the movie, this guy's taking credit for. He's like, you might have noticed this in the paper. And um, they're like oh, this guy's a phony. And that's when the plan goes, how do we emasculate this guy as a spy by having a strike team attack and take both of them hostage and throw sacks over their heads uh, where you can see what a not fake spy. And this guy who suddenly is like, oh my God, oh my God, they think I'm a real spy and I'm not. Um, I think I love that this movie does. Helen puts up a really good fight when they try to kidnap her. Yeah. Um, it's what well, the first person who tries to grab her is clearly Tom Arnold in a ski mask. She knees him in the balls. Then Arnold tries to grab her and she bites his arm. Now, we see Arnold being foiled by Jamie Lee Curtis biting his arm, whereas earlier, not like 
well, 20 minutes, to, you know, earlier, we see him completely unfazed by by someone knifing him, by someone clanging his head against a, a bathroom urinal. Like, yeah, no. he was unfazed by all of that. Um, because prior to this, there was an amazing men's restroom fight scene, at, which made me try and think of how many men's restroom yeah. fight scenes has Arnold actually participated the, in. There's actually in, quite in, a few. The, as far as chases through malls and also fights to the death in bathroom in the men's bathroom, this has got to be one of dozens, or a dozen maybe. So, so he, he is unfazed by all of that, but... Helen Tasker bites his arm through his like SWAT gear. <laughs> yeah. And ah! I love that another agent goes and hits her with the butt of the gun, and <laughs> Arnold punches that agent in the face. The guy just drops. Um, but I love that the I love that this is what I love what they do with Helen because this movie pulls in so many directions in terms of gender politics. But it lets her be a bit of a badass, that she's the one that after all of this stuff finally ends and they drop her van off, she's the one who screams pricks at them. Uh, she's the one who, when they're interrogating her in the room with the two-way mirror, she's like bashing it with a stool uh, and screaming at them. She puts up a fight. Um, and they let her be funny. They let her be clever. They let her call people on their bullshit when they're interrogating her. And I think the fact that she's got kind of a really relatable motivation for why she'd hang out with this sleazeball. I mean, because she's not cheating. She has no intention of sleeping with this guy. But I think the the line that they use for her is that she says um, she wanted to do something outrageous and it felt really good. She said reckless also at some point. Yeah, she wanted to do something dangerous. She said she wanted to be needed and to be trusted and to be special. And you see that line actually hit home with Arnold. He like tears up in yeah. like one eye. That he sees that he has kind of, she has kind of, she had all these ideas for what she wanted to do with her life and she didn't see herself doing it. Now, the why isn't he tearing up at his guilt, at his realization that he has just kidnapped his wife and put her in this position where, she, where he is in on the inside, you know, in the know and you know, eliciting all of this very detailed, intimate information from her. That's what his tears should be about. Yeah. yeah. He should feel yeah. guilty. In the, he doesn't, but he decides to give her a mission. And here's the thing where I think that's a really cool idea, but the kind of mission he gives her is I'm like, oh, no, Harry. <laughs> I actually wrote down that phrase. I'm like, no, you know, give her something else. Be this is the thing that I do like that they do with her, though, in that moment, which is, oh, I'm going to send her to pretend to be a prostitute to the this safe house hotel that we have and it will really be me with a tape recorder pretending to be this French guy and um, I'm going to make her do a strip tease for me and somehow sneak a bug near a phone and you know that is really uncomfortable yeah. as much as I appreciate the contribution that this scene had to my own personal puberty <laughs> um, not cool um, and uh, also perhaps the single scene that I think Jamie Lee Curtis will be known for her entire movie career hands down yeah just something in being just like a, just very memorable and I think it's not just because of having Jamie Lee Curtis do the transformation of having like a really goofy looking haircut earlier with the big glasses on and 
doing the thing where you movies do this all the time where they make women be ugly by giving them glasses or like acne or something and then they can magically transform into someone beautiful but again all it first, takes is a little bit of plant water right yeah <laughs> but, I, but I, this yeah. was good because they they i mean not there was obviously things that are meant to be prurient about the whole thing obviously but then you have that bit when she's she's she dances like you need to dance for me and she does this funny like twirling her fits her hands and she goes no no dance sexy for me so there's a little comedy and then there's the bit where she's really getting into it and then she sort of stumbles and falls over and you see Arnold sort of get up from his chair like he needs to go get her and then sits right back down that was just a flub on the set but in the the rhythm of the scene it's a great comedic break from the sort of like ooh this is getting a little bit too hot and heavy and but they have this funny little comedy moment that totally fits with her character and becomes a really charming little piece in what is otherwise kind of problematic. You this know? is the the reason I think Helen is one of my favorite characters in this movie is that they give Helen moments where she can be funny and brave and also really kind of into being a spy. Like she gets up there and she has what she thinks is her sexy dress and it's got these floofy things all over. And there's this moment where she sees herself in the mirror and she's like, no, I need a more effective cover. And she sort of tears <laughs> off the floofy bits and turns it into a sort of a slinky black dress and uses that vase water to slick her hair back, puts on the le- red lipstick. And it says things where she's like, no, I'm going to be good y- at this. You missed the boosting the bosoms up. Boosting right. the bosoms up. Yeah. And it's those little things where you can tell she's like, no, I'm going to do this. And, you know, and it's like a clear decision sort of like. And even the bit where she drops the um, the bug the bug and has to find a way to dance towards it. <laughs> I mean, little things like that where it's like it's goofy because she's not really a spy, but she takes this shit really seriously for someone who's being extorted into doing it. So I, in my head, wrote like six different possible missions that Harry could have sent Helen on. <laughs> yeah. Um, two yes. of them alone involve zoos. Um, <laughs> because that can be charming and goofy, and you can and get that kind. Of, and yeah, yep. and I mean, all, at some point you have some awkward scene where like one giraffe mounts another giraffe, right? And <laughs> you get that weird like twelve-year-old boy thing going. Like I don't know, but like there are there are so many things that Harry could have done to give her that excitement, and then she comes home feeling all you know revved up and and like a new woman, and 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 uh, I don't know, they have a rumble in the bed or something like that right like there are so many things and this would have been such a better use of that two hours and 20 minutes right the whole intrigue into all right helen is feeling underappreciated she hasn't gotten to do the reckless thing i can't blow my cover but i'm going to you know send her to do this particular thing imagine if they had they already had the horse scene imagine if they had been in a zoo and it had to like dive through the walrus tank and then i don't know right. ride a, a, an indian elephant like it's so easy you didn't and you could have even had Jamie Lee Curtis lose her clothes down to her underwear at some point sure. in that thing mm-hmm. like the captain kirk right um I, i'll say i agree with that i mean choosing sexual humi- humiliation as the thing is a extremely extremely problematic and i also think that one of the things that is to this movie's detriment is that the way that they sort of end this section of the movie and start with the next one is just this kind of surprise transition that they could do at any point in time and the mission that she's on doesn't follow what's going to happen next so that she's uh you know he's going to kiss her she's on the bed she's going to kiss her she's still has to plant the bug 
So she like hits him over the head with the phone and tries to get away. And this is an old phone too. This yes. is the kind when you hit somebody with it, a little bell dings. Yes. <laughs> Those, I and your bell wait, dings. Do we have one in this room? I think we. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think a lot of younger people might not know. We do. That, actually, uh, we do have one in the rotary phone. But these old rotary phones, um, they're substantial when you pick them up. Right. You could probably, you know, make the little birds tweet around Arnold Schwarzenegger's head if you knocked him with it. But I kind of love those are the moments where there's a point at which Helen doesn't take shit that a lot of movies might not sort of do because she beats the fuck out of a couple people in this movie that I do kind of enjoy. Um, but yeah, that's what I mean is it, it feels like, is that enough to make up for the other things? The fact that he makes his wife do a strip tease in front of him, not knowing it's him. And yeah. it's just like a lot of things like that, that just don't age really well because this movie, when it, it's in its high point, it's spectacular. And then when it's low point, you're just like, oh, it's not 1994 anymore. Yeah. The the moment of Arnold going into, now lie on the bed, close your eyes, and he's going into to kiss her is meant to, I think, evoke some kind of tenderness yeah, in the Snow audience. Yeah, Snow White sort of deal. Yeah. Right. And for, for me, it was just so uncomfortable. It I, was. I had this very uncomfortable memory of of this movie except for the action things like I rewatching it now as a as a 37 year old I really really enjoyed all the action sequences like I totally did but in my mind this was like something to be feminist against right yeah <laughs> and uh and rewatching it I it didn't change at all it became even a reinforcement of how uncomfortable and wrong and problematic yeah. this whole thing was I'm- and while Harry Tasker, while Arnold Schwarzenegger is suspecting that his wife is cheating, he's actually mean to the family dog. Yeah, that's true. He's yanking the dog's collar. Right. That's pretty sad. And like, yeah. it's, he is just so boiled over. And you'd think that as someone who has to, you know, infiltrate major events and say, "Oh, hello, Colonel. It's been so long since I've seen you." Oh, yes, Vera. Who was that guy? Right. Yeah. Like, he is this smooth James Bond guy. For him to be so unnerved and unmoored by by even the thought that his wife might be getting some, um, to 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 yank the family dog. Like, it, it, uh, I just did not like He's, that whole forty minutes. And yeah. I, it was like. Forty minutes of this two and a half hour movie. That's true. Yeah, and he's so angry about this that when uh, I guess when you can say Tom Arnold is trying to pump the brakes on this situation about putting you know no, page ten. Where's page ten? <laughs> yeah, page ten. Where's page ten? And you know, it's like and you know he make he pulls the car over by driving up onto a curb, and then when he won't hand the page over right away, he punches out a car window. I mean, and you're like, it's his wow. own car window. It's but... his own car window, but uh, you're just like, oh boy, yeah, here you go. Here's the page <laughs> and it's it's he's pulling people off of other important surveillance missions with a helicopter to go after this guy who's trying to put the moves on his wife um i have a lot less problem with them um emasculating him at like that dam than i do with all the shit with his wife where they're like asking Chris, do you love your husband and stuff like that and oh have you slept with him and i, I to her credit she's like that's none of your fucking business yeah you know, who are you? You know, weirdo voice from behind the window. I, I just I still think that on top of all the other things, the idea that the transition from that part of the movie to the next part of the movie is just like surprise terrorists break break down the door and capture you, which is a moment that could happen anywhere. And that doesn't have any clear sense of continuity from where we left the terrorists before. So we haven't even talked about it. It's like they meet Juno Skinner, Tia Carrere, and they sort of track 
him her to us as an art dealer and i think he now i'm forgetting the timeline of events they end up being followed him gibson and harry tasker tom arnold and him get be, and being followed and so they try to lose them in a the mall they want to like who are these guys like it, we gotta, yeah, it was the, ID the marriott them. and this yes. is the thing that preceded you know, this was like the second big action chase right. thing and in the movie. And it's important because I think this is probably one of the two big trailer moments is um, the bad guy, uh, he dispatches two guys in a bathroom and the real bad guy with the crazy eyes and the crazy hair um, who kind of, kind of looks like an Arabic George Costanza. I, that's the only way I can he's like a, He's way it. cooler looking than George Costanza. Yeah. He's got kind of the receding hairline with the crazy bad guy we're, eyes. We're talking Art Malik? Art, Art Malik, Malik okay. as, um, what was his name? Uh, Salim Abu Aziz. So Aziz, Aziz is actually a pretty cool bad guy. He gets to jump a motorcycle from the top of a building yeah. to the uh, the pool the on the other side. Pool. I think that what's great is that when they're, at a, they're they're chasing him and he's trying, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Tom Arnold have basically made sure that his his heavies have died, and so he's running away. He basically he goes through the middle of the park and he pulls a guy off of a motorcycle, John Rambo first blood style, right? Yeah. Like, right as he's he just grabs his jacket, throws the guy on the ground, picks up the bike, and goes, which is a pretty baller move for an action show. And then Arnold Schwarzenegger jumps on the horse. No, well, with apologies. With, yeah. Federal does, agent in pursuit he, he of does, suspect. He commandeers Sorry. a police horse, which is, <laughs> I, that's pretty unique, Meet I would say. Meet me here because my horse is getting tired. Yeah. <laughs> And then proceeds to chase, have a, have a motorcycle, a horse versus motorcycle chase that goes through a big fancy skyscraper hotel. And all of that is brilliant. Yeah. It's all, it's all really amazing. It's, it's pretty and then amazing. That, and then the whole, then that whole thing, it just stops. Right? I mean, you know that they get away. There's a debriefing scene with um, back at Omega, the Omega Force. Wait, Omega, Omega Sector. Sector. Omega Sector. And then that whole plot just kind of stops. And you have no, then when no, they show up yeah. again, you're like, what? Okay. Also, yeah. also, Arnold has managed to stay unidentified through that entire damn right. horse chase. You right. were in a windowed elevator atop a police horse, and nobody was able to get a photo of your face. What I love about this action sequence is the the variety of it. It starts out with Arnold fighting in a bathroom, which is an old favorite. Um, he gets into a knife fight. He beats a guy down by ripping one of those hand dryer things off of the wall. <laughs> he does get to dunk that guy's head in a urinal yeah. and say, cool off. <laughs> there, were, How many Arnold puns were there? There was cool off. There was you're fired. You're fired. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Uh, there's, a, there's a few. This actually has quite a few good catchphrases in it. Oh, at the beginning when he's at the Swiss castle. Here's my pa- Here's my t- Here's my. Oh, when they, they, he's trying to just walk out the front. My and, invitation. Yeah, yeah they're like, so can I see your invitation? Fine, here's my invitation. And he sets off the bomb, um, which is pretty fucking great. I, I will say, though, the, the, the I think the funniest bit in this entire movie, which is not even really a Arnold Schwarzeneggerism, is that he sort of needs to go upstairs at the, at the in this uh, party to like put a bug on the computer so they can download files and he's sneaking into areas that he's not supposed to be and security's going to find him and he and he is he's now at this point in time spoken like three languages and apparently good and passable enough that people understand him mm-hmm. and then he comes out and he says oh i had to take a major leak or something where's the bathroom and then it says in parent parentheses perfect arabic i love I that like, that's the that is it's <laughs> yeah. a subtitle joke yeah. i've never since seen a subtitle joke where 
that was clearly added in afterwards, right? Because it's a it is a funny joke about how Arnold Schwarzenegger can barely be comprehended in English, let alone speaking another language. There's a bit where he's fleeing the castle and a couple of guard dogs run at him, oh, yeah. and he turns and they both leap at once. He catches them and bonks their heads I together. I wanted a coconut sound. <laughs> <laughs> and they go and he just goes stay. Okay, that is that is one of the liners. Yep. But yeah, there's a lot of those, and I love that the sequence at the the hotel. It's like it starts out bathroom fight. Uh, it goes from knife fight to gunfight. Jesus Christ, how many rounds of ammunition are fired in this bathroom? It's like all of them. There's like going to be a bullet shortage in Washington, D.C. <laughs> after this happens because it is it is pretty wonderful. Then it goes into foot chase, into a horse versus motorcycle chase up to the roof. I mean, and it's fun. It's funny. You get to see Arnold going through all of these different locations doing things that you don't normally get to see Arnold do. I also like that the horse chase, where the horse refuses to leap from the top of the Marriott into the rooftop pool of the other building below to pursue, continue pursuit of the, the motorcycle terrorist, that it sort of presages all of the times that he's going to have to rescue a hanging person. So either his mm. daughter or Jamie Lee Curtis, and it's the horse yeah. who, who is holding on to... Um, you know, is is the last little thing um, helping Arnold not fall from atop this <laughs> skyscraper. I kind of like that he, he finally gets a horse to back up and pull him off the ledge. And he kind of chastises the horse. He's like, what the hell kind of cop are you anyways? You you know, we had him. You let him get away. See, that that little do-little moment is the thing that made me think, hey, you could totally replace the Jamie Lee Curtis dance sexy for me mission with something in a zoo. Because yeah. he already has that kind of uh, camaraderie and, and weirdness with, you know, talking to animals. Yeah, it's just a little thing where maybe she has to pick up a thing and then a spy shows up and fake shoots at her. Maybe set up a little charges so she thinks she's dodging bullets. Um, little things like that where she thinks she gets a narrow escape and, you know, plants a bug or has to go in in a disguise or something. That's the sort of shit where everyone there is an agent. Yes. And she's not in danger and then the real bad guys show up to interrupt it and suddenly she really is in a spy thing. What I love is when the terrorists uh, grab them uh, for the first time and she sees that it's Arnold, she doesn't even get to fully process what's going on uh, before the bad guys come in and start grabbing them, and Arnold is like, "Helen, just listen to them. Do, you know, you know, just do what they say." And she's like, let "Stop me, it, Harry! Let, let me handle this, Harry!" <laughs> yeah. As she's being dragged out, that is my favorite part. One of my favorite parts, my favorite non-action part of of the film, is when she's trying to be the spy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're just a computer salesman. Let me handle this, Harry. Shut up. I love that so much because she's the one in the spy story. She's like, oh my god, no, I'm the one you want. I mean, all that stuff is just great. And I, oh, and what's kind of fun is the moment when they're taken back to that base in the Florida Keys. Is that um. He just kind of has to level everything out with his wife, and she just punches him in the face. If you watch Tia Carrera in that moment, she smiles. She like lights up mm-hmm. when Arnold gets punched in the uh, face. I have to say, this is a this is peak Tia Carrera. I think because this is after Wayne's World, this is after Showdown in Tokyo. This is probably the highest profile movie that she gets because I looked at her credits after this, and it's mostly like terrible movies, voiceover stuff, and TV stuff. And, you know, there was that, there's a two-year period where you were like, she was the it girl, you know? I mean, this is, this was the peak. It's just, it's, it, there is an, another 
part of this that's sort of regrettable is Eliza Dushku, who plays the daughter, was like assaulted by the stunt coordinator. Yeah. And it was like the the shit, some of the shit that you're like, um, that is so regrettable is is part of it's just like the 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 way this movie treats women, the way Hollywood ends up treating women, like the fact that Tia Carreri, like and even Eliza Dushku, even today, like once women get to a certain age, they are just like not bankable as movie stars anymore. So there are so many women that were in their twenties especially like in the 90s that you never see anymore. And to me, it's totally criminal. It's like, is Tia Carrera is not because she can't play a 25-year-old or a 22-year-old woman is not allowed to be in movies anymore because that's just not... And to me, that makes me really upset because there's yeah. a point where I was like, that, she's amazing. She's, she's amazing. And there's there's a lot of actresses that are great. And this is one of the things I love in, say, um, you know, the Kill Bill movies. And this is just a thing that I love with Tarantino in general is that we've mentioned Tarantino's ability to sort of dust off someone that everyone else thinks is done and remind you that like uh, like what's her name is really good. Like Daryl Hannah is one of the bad guys in yeah. Kill Bill and she's yeah. fucking great. And um, Pam Greer in, in Jackie Brown mm-hmm. is just fucking spectacular. Yeah. And you're like. And it's like this recognition of, no, there's some amazing actresses where Hollywood just says, nope, that's the expiration date. Jennifer Jason Lee in Hateful Eight. Yeah, there's some incredible people out there that still get used. And, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis is such a great example. Uh, She's one of the best parts of Knives Out. Knives Out is Mm -hmm. an incredible movie Mm -hmm. with a lot of people in that movie. And it's just like – it. and the thing with uh, Eliza Dushku gets worse when you read that – she did go to an adult who confronted Joel Kramer, by the way, we need to name this piece of shit, yeah. uh, confronted him about this bullshit. And the next time that she was in a stunt, it went wrong and broke her ribs. And there's a lot of good evidence that he did that on purpose as a retaliatory yeah. fucking bullshit thing. Yeah, this is the this is the piece of it. This is the piece of it that's really hard because there's so much to love about the spectacle of that is Arnold. And of course, then the stuff that happened when it was made and the ugliness around some of it it was just like it's kind of unbearable and it kind of makes you feel like well i shouldn't pay the money to rent this or anymore because you don't necessarily you don't want to end up supporting that so it's it's hard because and i also don't think i think arnold's reaction was in support because he wasn't aware of what happened to the time i think that's the same thing i mentioned with cameron this only came out two years ago yeah. and as part of the sort of wave of Me Too with people going, you know what, it's time to finally tell this story that this stuff is ubiquitous and it needs to be brought out, that some of these pieces of shit are still working yeah. and they have never seen consequences. And I know Arnold and others are just like, I am so sorry that, you know, we were adults and we should have protected you. This is this is bullshit that this happened to you and I am so sorry. Yeah. But I think the I think the one thing that you could say about the aftermath of this being is that like well it's still this is a movie that people will end up remembering so if there's something that bad that happened about it then it's at least a headline that would grab someone's attention that would be like if it's if it's a actress who has an accuser of something you'd be like oh you see that all the time but if it's true lies you'll be like. I remember that movie. Maybe I should pay attention to this story. Maybe it means something. Maybe maybe there's still a pervasive sense of kids being in danger and on movie sets and we should do fucking do something about it. The you know? thing that it that it sparked for me was you know, hearing about Eliza Dushku being being abused on this set and then having retaliatory injuries, right? Is 
Well, that's not surprising. The movie is just soaked in in people calling women bitch. Yeah. Um, even Jamie Lee Curtis and Tia Carrera's characters call each other, you know, psychopathic bitch and and whore and things like that. Um, and and it's just soaked in that. Yeah. It is. And it's like, I love the the ridiculous skiing gunman action, you know, ser- sequences as much as anyone else. And you know, people could say like, oh, that's you know, ridiculous, um, you know, hyper masculinity and everything. I think that you can have, but that's that's cartoony though. Yes, that's cartoony. That's yes. hyper masculinity, which is different from the toxic masculinity. And I think that yeah. there's definitely a play. Like when I'm talking about the zoo scene that I script in my own head for how to improve true lies, that's the kinds of things that I'm talking about. When I'm ta- when I start out by saying this is like Incredibles except way less wholesome, yeah. it's because not once I think does does Helen Tasker actually speak to her own daughter. Right. There is no lines exchanged or even like mentions about What's mom it, yeah. from Elijah Dushku or about Dana, the daughter from from um, from Helen yeah, Tasker. They, they even have that weird subplot where it's like she's got a she's got a boyfriend. Uh, the, the daughter has a boyfriend and she's stealing money out of the out of the jacket pocket or something, which is sort of like that's a thread that goes nowhere, I guess. Like you want her character to have some kind of recognition of maybe I shouldn't be bad anymore. Yeah, it's um, like it's kind of a very John Connorish kind of like I'm stealing money and riding away on a dirt bike moment. But but it also leads to I think what is clear I think the ugliest joke in this which is maybe she's stealing money to have his abortion or oh, something. Oh god. And I'm like it lands not not only does it not even funny in the context it's just ugly. It's just an incredibly ugly piece. That would be one that I think should have hit the cutting room floor even yeah. in 1994 because it's like that's not funny. You can't make that funny at all. It's, it's, You're talking yeah. about a 14 year old kid yeah. here, and that yeah, it isn't funny. The other thing is that the the only sort of interactions that Elijah Dushku's character has is with the boyfriends, mm-hmm. and then as sort of this um, this amazingly resourceful little hero that's going to stop Miami from being blown up by a nuke, right? right. Or, yeah. Is it is it Miami that they end it's, up? It's Florida. They're from the Florida Keys, nope. and then they go they're mainland. At, yeah, they're at a building on top of Miami that's being built. Yeah, yeah. so it's downtown Miami. So so she's there, and she was like, "I'll steal the key," because he just announced that uh, that this key, one turn of the key, is going to you know blow up everything. What key? Uh, and you know she's she's going away like it's planting the seed that this is an amazingly resourceful spy family right there's incredible potential there um so she's running away right and she's she's runs up the crane and then out on the crane and uh terrorist aziz is come child just give me the key right and you know <laughs> she's she's there she, that's what he says yeah, he's a child right and because she is she's a freaking child yeah and and she says, you know, you shoot me, this falls, and you don't get your thing. Like, you need me. She's she's trying to to have some kind of purchase with yeah. this guy. Mm-hmm. and She actually gets a bit of it, because it's a one moment that Aziz shows actual fear in the movie, rather than right. just like, oh my god. There's moments of, like, what the fuck that he has. But the one moment of genuine fear is when she th- threatens to throw the key down. He has the genuine fear, and he tries to say, child, it's okay, uh, come to me. And as soon as... A 14-year-old little girl says, no way, you wacko. Suddenly, 
this terrorist who is like king of all everything of smuggling in Kazakhstan nukes <laughs> just seethes with rage. His yeah. his reaction shot, right, on that, no way, you wacko. He's like, come here, and then and his whole face transforms into <laughs> this actually, rabid dog. Right. That was good face acting. It that was, is. but it's at the same time provoked by a 14-year-old girl. Yeah. And it's 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 regardless of whether it's a 14 year old girl or you know they're they're not only being abused behind the scenes but also can elicit the seething boiling rage oh. of a grown man yeah oh. it's hard it's hard it's hard to watch mm. because because i love the skiing gunman <laughs> i do the action scenes in this movie i don't think we've talked enough about them are fucking great yes um, so i mean we should talk so they get caught and they go to the keys and they have the nuke reveal of course the reason why um the crimson jihad wants him there so he can say on camera that yes they do have nukes their threat is real this comes from a guy who who's part of your government and they actually arm a nuke and set it to blow up and put buried in concrete and so there's this ticking time bomb for this set piece where well both harry and helen tasker are there are they going to escape before the bomb goes off and then that i think this is shows the genius of jim cameron's acting cho- uh, direct acting direction chops because this whole scene where they're sort of fighting in the warehouse then outside of the warehouse and trying to get away trying to find a way to get out you understand the geography of what's happening and at no point in time are you like where where are you the, the camera work is pretty solid the the lining up of the action is, is super solid and it has i think for my money the best single best shot of this entire movie um uh arnold schwarzenegger gets away and bad guy terrorist is like oh he's near a he's near a, a tank a, a tank truck and he takes a uh, like shoulder-mounted rocket, rocket launcher and blows him up and Arnold Schwarzenegger runs and dives in the water. Yeah. And then you see a shot, what is clearly Arnold, um, swimming forward and then above him, like a wash of fire comes over him above him and, and Harry Harry has escaped basically the explosion. That shot is fucking incredible. And it's, it's practical too. Yeah. What I love about it is that you can see in the making of they really had Arnold jump in the water and is yep. swimming while they're shooting fire above the surface of the water. Yeah. Although in that uh, behind the scenes making of True Lies, you learned that for as athletic as Arnold is, he cannot dive. <laughs> yeah, he kind of like belly flops out over the he over super the flies water. it. Oh, yeah. Well, not only can uh, he not dive, unfortunately, Arnold can't dance. They talk about. I thought he was okay. See, they talk about how he's like, oh, he had weeks of weeks of training for the tango, and then most of the time they film him from like ch- chest up because they're just like because they're like well his legs aren't moving that well well and it's also that whole all both tango scenes the opening and the and the closing tango scenes you know where jamie lee curtis's wife gets to be the tango partner finally yep uh all of those are shot with like complete rotating you know uh uh, shots and it's all it's it's not a continuous shot where we're actually seeing either of them dance no no it's very silly but it's it's okay arnold can't dance the tango all that well you know i when when you were saying the the most amazing action sequence you know with the fire billowing out over the surface of the water I thought you were going to say the fire hose that he ends up shooting and spraying fire across all of these uh, terrorist henchmen with there's a lot of fire in this there's a lot of fire Uh, there's a lot of Arnold using two Uzis at once (laughs) there's Arnold uh, 
doing a moment where he steps on a board that flips a machine gun up to his hands and he takes out multiple guys. <laughs> There's a bit where he dangles down from a rope hanging by his legs like Spider-Man and snaps a dude's neck. Yep. Yep. Uh, there is so much wonderful Arnold violence in this. Okay, but we cannot undervalue Jamie Lee Curtis trembling and holding a gun. <laughs> yeah. And then poor Helen housewife Tasker <laughs> dropping, you know, firing off maybe like six rounds, hitting no one and nothing as far as anyone can tell, and then dropping the gun, having it bounce down a series of wooden staircases and taking out like 28 terrorists. <laughs> yeah. She kills almost as many people as Arnold does in it's a regular true. movie. It's it's pretty fucking great. I, what I love is that she takes out a, so many guys, and then when the thing finally hits the bottom step, Arnold kind of goes like is like looking around at the carnage, and he looks up, and she's like, eh, and gives him a little thumbs up. I kind of love that little like I got him, and I, and I like Arnold's little like kind of wink. Yeah, okay, yeah. good going. Yeah, we can do this. Um, yeah, it's this this movie's action is is spectacular. Yeah, it's it's something that. You know, we can argue about the sort of pros and cons of this movie, but the pros are really high. The bits where you get to see Arnold hang from a helicopter. Oh, wait, we missed him sliding backwards down the mountain, taking out guys on on skis. Oh, ski bad guys are one of my favorite things in a spy movie. And not only does bullets bouncing off snow create little white explosions everywhere, but... I love him sliding down that hill, and then when he gets to the very bottom and rendezvous with the van, they're talking to him, and he says, excuse me, can you move back a little bit? And shoots through the car past Tom Arnold and hits two bad guys. Yep. There's there's so, so many excuse me's and I'm sorry's, and it's just, it bookends sort of his, his schlubby computer salesman persona that mm-hmm. he carries with him into his spy life. Every time he has to borrow a horse or <laughs> take out something, oh, I'm sorry, oh, excuse me, and I... <laughs> That's 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 kind of one of those endearing and charming places. I know. I it's just those are the things that really make the movie work. I mean, even when he gets into the elevator on the horse, he just asks the people, "Could you hit the 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 button for the top floor, please?" And <laughs> it's just those little like, things. Say something. Oh, that's a fine horse you have there. Like, why? <laughs> why is that scene even in there? It's a weird I, scene. There's these little characters that get drawn into action sequences throughout the movie for a little comedic the gu- effect. The guy in the bathroom, for example. The guy in the bathroom who's just um, on the toilet dropping a duke yeah. and <laughs> and like a terrorist fight happens outside of his stall. All, like thousands of bullets everywhere. None of them hit him. And I just love that after the action sequence ends, he just kind of leans out of the stall and his pants are still around his ankle. And he's like, oh. <laughs> and then there's that little piece of the, the hand dryer drops and goes ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Oh, it's fun. Now, set against, so that shootout in a in a men's room in kind of a mall or hotel, set against our modern sensibilities, and myself as a public school teacher that has had to do lockdown drills and train kids in active shooter situations and things like that, it, it has a different kind of ring to it. And so I think it it helped me sort of suspend my modern sensibilities by looking at the, you know, 1994 hairstyles and the things like that of saying this is a different time because I don't think that something like true lies could happen with the same sense of like jaunty ridiculousness. Yeah. 
Um, Certainly not with terrorists. It, no, no. And, I mean, and it's like when we were watching Red Heat and they're talking about the war. They're basically talking about the war on drugs. It's impossible for us to watch a movie now knowing what it is. The same thing with terrorism is they. It can't be lighthearted, goofy joking about them. Yeah, it's, it's because post nine eleven, because the just, Aziz character is like ridiculous by the end. He like it has to get. I'm getting hit in the balls moment. You know, like oh no no no, but he has his getting hit in the balls moment when he he flies back on the Harrier jet right and the mm-hmm. tail piece ends up you know rupturing his nutsack right <laughs> but you know what totally helps someone recover from ruptured nutsack reestablishing contact with your gun yeah <laughs> yeah like, suddenly the thing that would take you out for like months and <laughs> require urogenital surgery repair <laughs> suddenly you're totally you know fine because you've found your I mean, machine gun that's that's clearly a looney tunes this the, the last yeah. is a looney tunes sort of set piece. Cu- I, you know yeah. aziz there's a lot of things you can say about the <laughs> way this character is written and the, the idea of the crimson jihad in general kind of a badass he still jumps onto a harrier jet from a crane and it's like that would be the point or even if i was a, a fanatical bad guy i'm like yeah that's that's about where i cut out <laughs> i'm i'm getting out of here my plot is over uh, I'm not blowing up Miami, um, but yeah, the, he's kind of a fucking badass, and he, I think he honestly gets one of the greatest Arnold death he does. catchphrase moments ever in an Arnold movie, where he ends up dangling by his like bandolier that he has around him from one of the missiles, and Arnold fires that <laughs> missile at another helicopter full of bat- building through yeah. a building <laughs> that he's he's previously gunned open with the line. You're fired. It was so refreshing to hear that line from someone other than someone. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. But I, that that's just that is just the the way in which this movie is not afraid to. It's has those strange moments where you know you go from having this conversation where he's having a conversation in a Corvette. Uh, riding down the road with uh, with Simon going, it's one word, pussy, am I right? And then you cut forward like an hour and t- 20 minutes later, and it's like a teenager hanging on the front of a Harrier and Arnold going, whoa, whoa, spinning around. And then the uh, basically Aziz being the roadrunner. And those two things next to each other are s- really strangely at odds with each other. I mean, the movie obviously works as a whole, but still it's a, such a weird juxtaposition for those things. Well, let's get into that very question. So mm-hmm. let's ask the two questions that we always ask at the end of the show, starting with, is True Lies a good movie? True Lies is a good, fine, enjoyable movie that sets out to do a thing and absolutely accomplishes it. I think before we had sort of the Michael Bay disaster porn huge spectacles, this was an amazing amount of of action blowing up, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is post T2. I really like for where it sits in terms of action sequences that aren't all, you know, digital CG'd and and for that reason, this is a good movie. This is a cool movie that brings in things that haven't been brought into film prior to now. Yeah. I man, I think it's a I think it's a great action movie, 90s action movies. I actually had the thought at the in the middle of when I we were doing research that I was thinking this is more of an 80s action movie that's done in the 90s. Because if you think about the sort of the spy craft in it, the the big piece of spy craft that's in it is like, we have a, a tracking bug in the purse or we have a little camera and a packet of cigarettes. This doesn't, 
you you know you move forward one year uh, two years later and you have a racer and you have like video game guns as the spy craft in it um so this is an 80s action movie that appears in the middle of the 90s in a in a, a scale that an 80s action movie could never have could never ever have concur so to me this is this is really arnold's last 80s action movie I can see that, yeah. Because everyone that appears after this has a lot more 90s baggage and looks a lot less like what he did in the 80s. And I think for that reason, it's probably among his greatest sort of Arnold, Arnold-ish roles. And I, I mean, it's got problematic shit in it for sure, but there's also charming, weird, little, interesting things that are weaved through it. Unfortunately, I have to say, I think this is James Cameron's worst movie, not counting Piranha 2. Oh, Wow. I mean, that's a that's a good scale, though. He's honestly, done, he's done a lot of great, amazing, sort of universe changing, cinema changing kind of movies, and this is just kind of full of holes and not really as cohesive as some of his other stuff is. It's I had gr- looked at this in terms of like James Cameron's uh, position on nuclear weapons, right? And so comparing like the <laughs> magic of the abyss and like wrestling with uh, with human morality, right. right? To this, yeah, nukes are bad. Let's <laughs> blow up the guys let's, that did the nukes. <laughs> let's, let's French kiss while, nuking, while nuke is happening. I do love that his hand is up and it's blocking their eyes so they're not blinded. Yeah. The neat little touch. It's not bad. Um, I would say, yeah, this is a pretty great movie with a couple moments that feel like a parking brake holding it back. Mm-hmm. It's like this could be a masterpiece if you ironed out the parts that don't work. I mean, there's plenty of those problematic elements we've mentioned, the sort of treatment of many women characters um, being put into situations where they're forced to strip tease for someone thinking it's a, a bad guy, like an arms dealer. There are four women characters total in this film. And the two major characters for the majority of the movie go around in high heels and low cut low cut dresses, basically I mean, the it, entire you, time. You've got Dana, the daughter. You've got Helen, the wife. You've got uh, Juno. Juno, the the nemesis, and then you've got the office person. Mm-hmm. Is, are there any other female the, characters in this a, whole there's the op- film? The secretary that that patches the call over to uh, patches the call from. Helen Tasker to him when they're undercover. So she's like, she's basically keeping up the ruse that he is a com- at a computer business. Right. But she's a secretary. So. And we've mentioned yeah. before, like half of the shit that Tom Arnold says, even though I think this is the best stuff Tom Arnold has ever done in his career. He's actually really remarkably charming given the material. Um, one of the best lines in the movie is the bit where he comes in to pick up Harry for work and he sees Dana leaving with that helmet on for the dirt bike and he's like, boy, I remember the first time I was shot out of a cannon. <laughs> and That's a very cute avuncular thing to say to like, hey, kiddo, I think you're being an idiot. And uh, there's little things like that, those little organic bits that this movie does well. Um, Like there's a bit where the terrorists are bringing out the nuclear weapon they've hidden inside of this this Persian antiquity, and they're carrying it over to this table. There's a bit where Tia Craig goes, what, 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 wait. And she goes so they don't set it on top of her purse. (laughs) And that's not a moment that a lot of movies would have where it's just little things that just, life happens in the middle of your slick action movie. Um, This is a movie that I really think, you know, despite all of its flaws, the high points are so high that it still really works. It goes from, you know, if you ironed that stuff out, that that problematic shit, and it wasn't, it hadn't aged as badly, this would probably be a top five Arnold movie for me. But I think it just kind of becomes top 10-ish. If we really kind of get in it, it's still a very good movie. I think in terms of action, 
you are not going to see this variety of action set pieces with Arnold riding a jet, riding a horse, getting involved in car fights, knife fights, making skis, a, skis making a flamethrower out of a fire hose. <laughs> I mean, all of this stuff that's going on in this movie, fighting dogs and and um, all sorts of crazy Under, stuff. There's an underwater scene. There's a, Yeah, there's everything. I mean, I don't think you're ever going to see this kind of variety from an action lead in a, an action movie until you get to something like John Wick in terms yep. of the cool stuff that they let the character do in the places they let them go. And there's helicopter chases. There's, I mean, there's so much good stuff in it. And the side characters are great that despite the fact that you still are dealing with 1994 action roles for women, Jamie Lee Curtis is is wonderful in this movie. Oh, we haven't even talked about her punching out Tia Carrera in the uh, in the limo as it's approaching the down bridge. Right? Yeah, she beats the shit out of Tia Carrera with a champagne bottle. <laughs> and Tia Carrera at first had offered her, can I offer you one? And then later when she gets the wine bottle, she's like, can I offer you one? And she beats <laughs> Tia Carrera or two and bam. And it's like those little moments I think a lot of movies would have forgotten to do. And even the very ending of the movie where they reconcile it by the two of them becoming married spies together, Mm -hmm. that this just becomes a way to spice up their relationship. A lot of movies wouldn't do that. They'd just be like her, you know, oh, I I love you, honey, off to go save the world. No, she's going to save the world with him. And it becomes part of their relationship. And I just, I kind of enjoy it. The fact that they're so caught up in the tango at the end that Tom Arnold's like, uh, guys, we got to save the world. You guys can, can you see the contact? Come on, guys. Man, can, can you guys sit in the van next time? I've been doing this for 15 years. I mean, that's a part I think, I think really kind of works. And I think that it says something about how high the high points are mm-hmm. that you can get past a lot of that shit that we've talked about. I, there's a part of me that really doesn't get past that. It's a thing that stuck in my craw for 25 years since watching it as a teenager and then picking it up on a, you know, I don't know, a TNT night or something like that when it was all, of course, like sanitized for TV. Now, rewatching it now, um, the, the full version, it feels almost like a lot of the cuss words are ADR'd in after the fact. Like maybe mm. they already got their R rating, so they're like, we're going to go all the way in. There's at one point when... Uh, when Tom Arnold says "fucker," right, and it was like that—that's—that's that's totally ADR'd in. Like we didn't see his face during that yeah. scene, and I'm like, why? Why are you adding in those kinds of things? For me, of any of the characters, to his character makes the most sense to just yeah. be the potty mouth. I'm gonna say that there's not a lot to be said about restraint in this movie, but this movie isn't the kind where, um, where Helen Tasker actually becomes nude, or they walk through a you know, a strip club or there is just like someone having sex with a woman or something like an incredibly beautiful woman. A a lot of other Arnold movies would have do that just obligatorily have like pretty gratuitous nudity and sex. And this doesn't. So in some there, in some extent, maybe it's because they wanted to have a more, Family friendly, I or suppose. Or scenes where the bad guy like shoots a bunch of women in the back or right. something. They they choose to not it's, do it's, that here. It's kind of damning with faint praise to say, sure. like, looking at the genre, how much worse they can get. Right. Because it can get pretty fucking bad. I mean, I, I just spent a couple last couple of months watching a lot of Italian giallo movies, and so oh, there's you your know, problem. By by comparison, there's this this totally tame. <laughs> this is like you know Saturday morning cartoons. It's true for an R rating with so much violence, there isn't any actual sex and 
actual titties that make you want to, I don't know, what, buttermilk? Beg for buttermilk. There you go. Beg for buttermilk. Ass like a 10-year-old boy. Not only that, but I also just saw Rambo Last Blood, which is terrible, by the way. And this movie also refrains from having really, really a disturbing sort of like gun violence. You know, there's no one, no one's limbs are like half fallen off and no one's head explodes in a grotesque way, right? Although, funny you should mention Rambo. I do like Helen Tasker's uh, realization, I married Rambo (laughs) in the middle of it. Because you know that that Arnold and Stallone are like juxtaposed throughout a lot of the 80s. So I I like that little toss. So I guess I guess to our second question to finish this out, is True Lies a good Arnold movie? Yes. Yes. It's even a good Tom Arnold movie. (laughs) (laughs) This is this is an excellent Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. And uh, I think, Casey, you were saying that it's kind of peak Arnold, 80s action Arnold, but done in the 90s so that you can do all of the amazing stuff. At the end, after this point, you have Junior. And which we know that's kind of his faltering for his comedy roles as Junior. And then Eraser is the next one, which is sort of more of the same, but not as good. Yeah. So he, I think this is where the top of Mount Everest for him. I think this, this is, is peak spectacle Arnold. Yep, yep. I think it is. I think this is, this is full on prime Arnold. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that you get to see Arnold do in this movie are pretty great. He's great as far as his performance goes. You get to mix the comedic Arnold in with the action Arnold. There's a lot of wonderful scenes where the camera zooms on his face, like mm-hmm. when he, he realizes his wife is lying and give her an opportunity to tell the truth. And it zooms on his face and his, like, his jaw quivers <laughs> just a little bit. Um, there is a big range of emotions that James Cameron is drawing out of Arnold, yeah. which prior to this, he hadn't, I don't even think, been challenged to do, to do those kinds of things. He has love. He has affection. He has guilt. He has anger. He has seething rage. He has- Suspicion? Yeah. He yeah. Is, he's hurt at one point when yeah. he walks out after thinking he's being cheated on. He like walks in front of a bus without looking. Right. He just looks so <laughs> crestfallen. But yeah, I think that that is a big part of that James Cameron can- he knows how to use Arnold better than almost anyone. I think Paul Verhoeven is the only person sure. that can really rival for how much you can draw out of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, I mean, the stuff that you get to do, he gets great chemistry with both Jamie Lee Curtis and Tom Arnold. Uh, he gets uh, to be funny, and he gets to be a badass, and even, like we mentioned, vulnerable. He gets to be a dad. He gets to be a dad. He gets to be kind of a dork at times. Yeah. Um, he gets to be a walking murder machine <laughs> that kills people with a higher body count than I honestly think after watching this, the highest body count outside of Commando. I think that's probably true. Just the sequence in Florida Warehouse to him gunning down an entire floor of terrorists with a Harrier jet (laughs) to all the people he kills in Switzerland. He gets to be incredibly suave and sexy and smart Yeah, in that whole uh, Swiss chalet scene, which I don't know that we get to see a lot in in Arnold action movies of him being an expert and smart and, and just competent in things beyond having high body counts. Yeah, because normally he's just kind of like this blunt instrument that gets thrown and just overpowers anything in his path. I mean, he gets to kill people with machine guns. He gets to kill people with grenades, that, that flamethrower Where fuel truck. Where did he get that grenade? <laughs> that, I have I that have, in my notes. I have no idea. He, it, fe- it was underneath the refrigerator. He just had to... Okay, yeah. got it. Um, he snaps so many necks in this movie. I mean, there's a lot of guys just getting pulled off of camera. and a then lot you of hear cel- a, celery stocks. A lot of celery. <laughs> um <laughs> And there's even a moment where he makes two guys with knives kill each other. <laughs> so, I mean, this is there's jets and horses, and 
This, I mean, this is actually pretty fucking cool. I mean, in terms of, in terms of peak Arnold, what you want to get out of an Arnold movie that uh, je ne sais quoi that we call <laughs> um, uh, you know absurd macho bullshit. Um, yeah, this is this is all absurd macho bullshit. It's crazy. It breaks the the laws of physics in so many ways, in so many awesome ways, but still manages to incorporate those little organic, embarrassing, humiliating, humanizing bits that they throw in there. So. I I really love that part of this movie. I think Arnold just shines here. Yeah, I think my only regret about this is that uh, James Cameron has never, as far as I can tell, has never done a release of this where he had a commentary track, which I feel like there's a lot of awesome stories from making this movie um, from from James Cameron that would be really interesting to know that like obviously Arnold doesn't know from his biography his biography has scant details about this 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 movie was also like we forget is at the cusp of the formation of digital do- domain which is one of the first sort of big computer generated special effects movie houses and this really like was the beginning of when big blockbuster action movies started to have not only the huge budgets but started to have these cg assisted uh, special effects and stunts that are now commonplace everywhere. You know, yeah. it's totally changed after this, and this was sort of the beginning. You know, so thank you, Rebecca Friedman, for joining us on this episode. Thank you. If uh, people want to find out about you and the stuff you're doing, where should they go look online? They can go to atheist.radio, where you can hear all the kinds of things that we've done for the past ten years. Um, with Ask an Atheist, and uh, most recently to ktqa.org because uh, Sam and I are directors for one of the newest low-power community radio stations in Tacoma, Washington. Yeah, just on the drive here, I was actually hearing your voice on the public announce thing, oh, and I was okay. like, oh, I've, I'm, I know the person who's the mascot for K2QA. Mascot? I'm yes. a mascot. mascot. Thanks. Yeah, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> just like Gritty. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you, Becky, so much for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Casey. Mm -hmm. And a special thank you to our episode sponsors, of which there are now 11. Wow. So we want to thank- It's getting better and better. It is getting better and better. So we want to thank you all by name. So a special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Gus Lindgren, Jim Newman, Sinjin, David Gutierrez, and Calzone. So (laughs) we want to thank you guys so much for supporting us every month. And if you want to join that illustrious group of people, if you want to become an episode sponsor, please check us out at Patreon on patreon.com slash Radio versus the Martians, or uh, click the big red button on the side of podcastalavistababy.com. We love you guys. We'll see you next month. Podcast de la Vista Baby is a production of Radio vs. the Martians and is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by James Wetzel with opening narration by Dan Lombardo. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. 
And finally, you can find us online at podcastalavistababy.com and radioversusthemartians.com. There was nothing. I swear. Sodium Amador or some other truth agent. It makes you tell the truth? Mm hmm. Is it working? Ask me a question that I normally would lie to. Are we gonna die? Yep. I'd say it's working. They're gonna shoot us in the head, or they're gonna torture us to death. Okay. Or they're gonna leave us here and all the bomb blows Harry! Up. How long have you been a spy, Harry? 17 years. Have you ever killed anyone? Yeah, but they were all bad. <laughs> <laughs>